All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now, let's jump into the episode. Let's give an AI money and see if it can like grow it into like a trillion dollars. That's how you create something like Skynet. And that's what's most exciting to me personally. All right, everyone, welcome to another bell curve roundup. You got Michaels one and two and Vance, and we've shed the dead weight with Yano being gone this week. Fellas, how you doing? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we is go. He in, uh, <laughs> is he in Morocco again? He's in Mexico. He likes the oh, end. Okay. Wow. He likes the end. Tough life for you guys. I know. A lot it's of tough. vacations, a lot of, a lot of time off. All him, man. All him. I'm here every week, week in and week out. <laughs> Take it up the slack. Um, where are you guys? That's a new background for you, Michael. Where Where are you? Um, I'm 90 degrees to the right in the same room that I normally record in. So. <laughs> Whole new feel. I like it. It's a totally it is, new uh, feel. Yeah. Yeah. I like the feng shui. It's nice. Exactly. It's All our right. office. Yeah. Oh, cool. It's nice. like the brick. Yeah. The brick is good. Um, all right, let's just uh, let's get into it because we we're recording like 30 minutes after the the announcement just came out about Kraken having to discontinue their staking service. So um, it's been a tough week for the exchanges overall. So a little while ago, Nick Carter tweeted about a new uh, operation choke point type thing, and we can get into exactly what that means. But you know, basically earlier this week, Binance tweeted that they were going to suspend uh, U.S. dollar transfers. Um, that, you know, Brian Armstrong also tweeted that they were, quote, hearing rumors that the SEC was likely to get rid of crypto staking in the U.S. for retail customers. And as of about 30 minutes ago, so it's kind of a developing story, uh, we knew that there was a probe, an SEC probe into Kraken, uh, and they confirmed that they are uh, basically bringing to an end their their staking service for uh, uh, for e-staking on their platform. I'll turn it over to you guys. I don't know what your what your thoughts are on all this high level. So uh, one point of clarification, I believe, and, and once again, moving in real time, uh, at least Brian Armstrong's tweet yesterday suggested that it was ETH staking for retail customers only, that institutional would still be allowed to stake. Uh, I, I think this is going to be, the devil will be in the details, right? When we finally see what's the point that the SEC is particularly making around what and why they cannot continue forward with this retail staking operation. Um, I believe Kraken has their own liquid staking derivative LSD token that represents the the ETH being staked on the platform. I, I'm, I'm almost sure about that. Uh, but I know that Coinbase does in the form of CB ETH. Um, my guess, and this is me, you know, without a, a legal degree, nor ever being a lawyer, is that their view is that the creation of that token while staking, which generates a yield either in the form of rebasing or increasing the amount of ETH that you'll be able to withdraw when you reclaim that ETH is the is the creation of the unregistered security. And offering that to retail uh, is probably something similar to what BlockFi got hit with, which was earn accounts for retail, where you're putting up crypto, you're putting up digital assets. In return, you're, the, those retail accounts are earning a yield by just having those assets in that account. Uh, obviously, it's very different because it's not rehypothecated and lent out um, to some nefarious characters, as we saw in the case of BlockFi. But this is something that looks and feels, on the surface at least, probably pretty similar to, in the eyes of the SEC, probably pretty similar to what those earn accounts 
uh, were, were doing. And also keep in mind, the SEC already said no to Coinbase being able to do the earn accounts themselves, um, whereas other platforms like Gemini continued forward and, and offered that to retail. So there's just going to be a lot of stuff to unravel here. Um, we're interested in waiting to see what the actual complaint is, what happens with Coinbase. And at, at, as of like 12.15 Pacific, nothing has happened with Coinbase other than Brian's tweet. But I feel like there's going to be other shoes to fall here. Um, so something that we're watching very, very closely. Yeah, I mean, like not a whole lot unique to add to that. It's kind of unclear what exactly is being targeted right now. Like they have APY percentages advertised on their website. They have a lending program as well that's advertised on their website. Like it feels like there's probably a few things. And I think the difference between, you know, Kraken, which is today, and, and Coinbase, which might be next week, and, and the Brian tweet seemed to kind of summarize that there wasn't any outreach that had already happened. Kraken's small, and a fine could potentially kill them. Mm. Um, and if the staking business isn't that large, and, and I'm trying to find the data right now, but I can't seem to pull it up. My best recollection is that Kraken had hundreds of thousands of ETH staked. Versus Coinbase with like probably millions, um, you know, that is a business that they're probably willing to seed if the fine would be existential slash kill them. Whereas, you know, if, if Coinbase is, you know, they have 1.2 million CBETH now, they have, you know, probably uh, millions more centralized staked ETH as well. Like that is a core part of the, the future story of Coinbase. I would expect there at least to be, you know, some pushback from them in the process of getting this settled. But it's very unclear what what exactly is being targeted at the moment. And and just to add one quick uh, one quick point, I, I believe in the filings for the last quarter, Coinbase's revenue eleven percent of it was staking revenue. Uh, they didn't break it down between retail and institutional, uh, but you can imagine based off of how much institutional you can assume based on custodial staking, and then CB ETH, which is retail, which we know is about one point one million ETH right now. You can assume that it's a probable, probably a pretty significant portion of that 11% is going to be retail. So this is a direct shot at that revenue stream. And, and tier 10K, DB just uh, just reported that it's a $30 million fine. So, so it looks like it's kind of an open and shut case at the moment. Mm. Uh, and it's just to clarify too why that, that revenue is important to Coinbase. They, you know, it's important for Wall Street and how investors are valuing that business because you know, they're very transaction-based right now, their trading fee revenue. The, you know, most investors assume that's going to go lower and lower, you know, kind of a race to zero over time. So what Brian wants to do is grow that subscription part of their business or the services and subscription part of their business, which is largely being driven by staking, right? Is that fair? Wall Street, Wall Street loves sustained revenue growth. Mm -hmm. And the best way to do that is with effectively subscription revenue. And the best way to have subscription revenue in, in crypto is to have staking returns. Just because over time, you know, as obviously the dollar value goes up as the value of the tokens go up, and likewise they go down as they go down. But over time, you can assume that the Lindy effect will take over. People will build trust. There'll be more use cases for the staking operations themselves, and that will become sort of like a, a SaaS, almost like revenue business. So the market doesn't like this. So you know, this was announced about thirty or forty-five minutes ago. Market's trading down about four percent. Uh, obviously, I think people were already a little bit jittery just in general about how the regulatory apparatus in the U.S. was going to react to everything FTX. Uh, I think, you know, if we're reading the markets correctly, pretty easy to read, uh, this would suggest that, like, you know, it could be headed in a bad direction. Do you guys think this is kind of like a canary in the coal mine type situation and there's more 
pain to um, more pain to come, more shoes to fall. The operation choke point stuff, I'm I'm less worried about. Where it's kind of like this uh, shadow cut off of of the U.S. banking system from crypto. I'm less worried about that because crypto has been through that before, and and there's actually very little, there's very few amount of counterparties that need to directly interact with a bank and crypto at the same time. Um, and we have stable coins now, and so like we kind of know how to patch that while things you know generally improve. Um, but there's other stuff as well. Like I was trying to buy, and I don't know if this is related to Operation Choke Point or things like that. I was trying to buy ETH for one of my friends so he could participate in an NFT sale through Rainbow, and I bought a bunch of ETH through Rainbow a bunch of times. But at this point, like my credit cards don't work, my debit card doesn't work. Like the auth rates seem to be falling in terms of just being able to buy an on-ramp onto crypto and Visa and MasterCard in the places that matter to retail. And so those are the things which you know probably slow the space meaningfully uh, in in the the long term if that continues. But we don't really expect that to be the long term prognosis for for you know the banking system and, and the credit card processors. I think this is kind of like a temporary backlash against all the stuff that happened not even three months ago. Um, so, so not that surprise as well. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that <laughs> whenever we're feeling doom and gloom, Vance and I'll be like, all right, what are the worst worst case scenarios? What are, what are like some of the, you know, black swan event type stuff? And, um, you know, you can get, you can go down rabbit holes, let's say with, with all that. And every once in a while we'll do that. One of the things that we were talking about earlier is, is you know, way stronger than than this, frankly. And uh, if this is really kind of like the biggest shot that they have, and you can assume, right, uh, you know, staking has been real. Proof of stake has been live since September of last year. It's taken six months to get to this point. CBETH, I believe, also launched probably around the exact same time as as the merge happened and proof of stake went live. It's, it's taken a while to be able to get to this point. And I would imagine that they've gone through a bunch of different, you know, different scenarios, different paths you know, to be able to get to a point of what seems to be the ultimate goal, which is shutting down things that are, you know, misleading or nefarious uh, for retail. And I, I'm not too concerned, really, if this is the biggest shot that they've got. Granted, we once again recording at the time when we are, if there are bigger things to happen, you know, who knows? Uh, but it, it does feel like if this path is true, and I, 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 you know, maybe Brian doesn't know, I would assume that to send out that tweet thread, there's probably been some contact at some point, and they're probably discussing it. So like, I'm sure that this is a conversation that's happened between the agency and all the different operators of these different platforms so far. And I'm not really like that negative if this is if this is the worst thing, mostly because like, I'm ready for just about anything to happen. Uh, but, you know, this this doesn't feel nearly that bad. Yeah, just to put it in perspective as well, great point by Michael. Um, last cycle, we didn't have stable coins. Um, I remember when it was Bitcoin, ETH, and Ethereum Classic trading on Coinbase. Like, like, yeah, we have a lot to lose at this point because we've built a lot and the ecosystem is very robust. But, like, we were, like, cavemen with, like, sticks and stones, like, even five years ago. So, you know... Yeah, like three three years ago, you know, you build up 100x, you give back 50x. You know, you build up another 100x. Like, you, like that's kind of how this industry has worked for as long as we can remember it. So, I agree with Michael. Like, assume the worst case possible can happen. 
it still really doesn't disrupt the trend of crypto taking over the world if it really is as powerful as we think it is. Yeah, I agree with that. Just by the way, we keep using this phrase operation choke point. Just some background on that. That was that was an operation that was launched by the DOJ uh, back in 2013 or something like that, where they sort of had this informal blacklist, right, that was enforced against agencies that sort of the Obama administration just didn't love. A lot of them were pretty unsavory. It was kind of like payday lenders, which no one's really going to raise their hand and say, hey, like payday lenders. But then, you know, there were ones that were more in the middle. There were like firearms uh, and fireworks and stuff like that. And then there were some ones that I frankly, I don't think would stand the test of time that well. There's actually dating sites were on there. I don't know if you saw that, but that's a little bit of a moral judgment. Uh, you know, pornography, which is again, kind of coming to the fore. So like, it just just shows you that even in you know ten years or whatever the uh, you know the the when the Overton window can shift on what's acceptable and what's not. And I think it was it was actually ended up being a highly criticized operation because they went you know there's a, there's a way that you can do that right within the law right that has to go through Congress and you have to say hey this industry isn't conforming to laws or standards that we like but they kind of circumnavigated that and then choked them off financially. So I think it ended up actually having a pretty poor legacy. Um, Although maybe the government people like it. So, so, so the sure. SEC letter just came out. Um, and mm. the key quote, I think, I've like read this for five minutes, two minutes at this point. Whether it's through staking as a service, lending, or other means, crypto intermediaries, when offering investment contracts in exchange for investors' tokens, need to provide the proper disclosures and safeguards required by our securities laws. That's, that's Gary Gensler. So it does look like they did target the staking program that was offered to retail. Um, and that right. was the source of the friction with the SEC. Mm. Yeah. Can you guys just describe, by the way, I, I but can you just describe why Gensler thinks that's a, uh, that that staking product is like an investment contract? In security? <laughs> not a lawyer. Uh, no, we're not. We're not lawyers. We can't. We can't I, discuss that. I mean, <laughs> just like my very like basic understanding. Um, I would say whenever you're presenting something to retail consumers or retail investors, I mean, look at what happened with Gemini Earn. How many people actually realized that Gemini Earn, all the value that was going into that to get to 4 or 5% yield was actually going to one counterparty who was making loans out to institutions like Three Arrows Capital? You know, how, do you, how are you able to ensure reliability and safeguards for people who lost a ton of their money? Look at the Winklevoss letter that was sent out, you know, the teachers that lost you know, life savings or, um, you know, there are actual risks in this industry. And if you're giving access to retail, I, I think that you have to, you know, put in the right safeguards, put in the right disclosures. Do people read those? Probably not. Just in the same way that you really understand how Wealthfront is giving you or how Robinhood is giving you 3 4% on your, your latent cash in those accounts. I mean, they're probably going off and buying T-bills, but you know, I don't know if most people actually know that. And, and so I think there's that element to it. I, I also think at the same time, lending is a very different product and a very different operation than staking. And I wish there was a little bit more nuance in being able to compare the two because yes, there is the the opportunity to lose your stake if one of the validators that you're staked on, you know, slash gets slashed or you know does a double spend or whatever whatever may happen to lose that value. Uh, it doesn't feel, frankly, and, and maybe this is just like hindsight being so terrible right now. Uh, it doesn't feel like there's that much of a risk as there was when you're doing opaque lending to other you know crypto institutions that you know may or may not be solvent.
it, it just feels very different. And so to bucketize yeah. them all into the same thing, it, I think is is tough. But it seems like that's the tack that they're taking. So the 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 last thing that I'll I'll kind of say on the the more the more negative front before, because I think there actually is a positive spin to this. Uh, I'm going to sort of determinedly like look for the silver linings here, but it's just. You know, if you zoom out and look at it like holistically from a high level, it's it does kind of. I understand that there needs to be safeguards, uh, safeguards for retail when you're offering stuff like this. But take your, you know, put yourself in the shoes of an entrepreneur in this space who's trying to, you know, act in good faith and uh, engage with the SEC and and build new products in crypto. I mean, it's never looked bleaker to do that than in the U.S. right now. So, like, the business model of the U.S. is like we are supposed to foster innovation here and then make sure we take a cut and we're industry leaders. Like that's, that's our business model as a country. And I don't know, it's, it's, and I'm sort of just reacting to this live, but this just seems pretty counterintuitive. It's always give and take. It's always back and forth. It's always who's in office, who's at the SEC, what's their, their tact and their, their positioning. And those things change. Um, but like, this really is not the worst thing that, that could have happened. No. They're, not, they're, not like the slightest. Like the worst case scenarios that Michael and I True. come up with are, are pretty insane. Um, and so when you think of those, this isn't that bad. Carida, I don't think no, I want to scare anybody. Um, no, fud, but, no FUD. No FUD pods. No FUD, no FUD pods. <laughs> but I, I do think that there is a dynamic to this, which I've alluded to, of um, what is the maximum fine that Kraken could have taken if they fought this versus what are they willing to sell, settle for and, and just put this away and, and keep going on about their normal business. But but to Mike, to your point, so one of the things, you know, we we have definitely been active in, in talking with regulators, talking with policymakers um, over the last couple of years. We've been, you know, a, we're a member of the Blockchain Association. We, we try to keep our, our finger on, on the pulse of what's happening. Obviously, it's been pretty negative over the last six months and nine months. Um, but what really, you know, enables what you're talking about, but also defends against the and, and provides the safeguards about, you know, what we're talking about here, or what the SEC is talking about here is clear rules. If we had clear understandings of what was okay, what was not okay, how do you how do you build this? How can you not build this? You know, what are the confines of, you know, your your sandbox that you can develop in before it gets to be something that you release? Um, what are the disclosure requirements for different types of products? like None of that exists right now, and and we're we're going back to depression era laws in in many cases, or case law from the last you know four or five decades ago to actually develop concepts of what we can apply to twenty twenty technology, and it just doesn't map. Um, so I, I agree. I think it's not it's not a failing of the agency because they have you know only the tools in their toolkit to to protect and and do that, but. It is a failing of us not having clear understanding or clear laws to be able to move forward and foster entrepreneurship. I want to put out one more take that I'm, I saw on Twitter. This is like, I feel like I'm breaking news just having the Twitter feed <laughs> up, up next to this. But That's what happens when you get two, two monitors. <laughs> we live in big now. Um, so, so this is Mike Selig, who was uh, at the CFTC, so he knows what he's talking about. SEC views Kraken's custodial staking product as a security. Kraken allegedly pooled crypto customers' crypto assets to provide superior and more consistent yield to customers relative to non-custodial staking. This is a key difference uh, that's absent in the case of direct and liquid staking. So, like, the devil is really in the details of a lot of this stuff and in the implementation of, of not only, like, what assets you're staking, but actually how you're staking them. Are you pooling them? Or are you going direct? Do cust Like, so... Uh, if CBETH, I remember, they're basically minting in batches because everyone is pooling their assets to stake if you want that liquid stake token. 
like a lot of this is um, going to be case dependent on you know basically each exchange and each staking provider. So it'll be interesting to watch. Maybe maybe that we can transition to like silver linings here in general, which is you know outside of just uh, staking services that are offered by exchanges. I mean, I would have to imagine that this is actually sort of positive for some of the liquid staking providers like Lido or Rocket Pool or or some of those guys. I mean, uh, I know, you know, without commenting specifically on any of them, I mean, how, how do you how do you feel about kind of the, the ecosystem for liquid staking that's outside of the exchange uh, hemisphere? I, I think um, the stake has to go somewhere, first of all. And so it is a tailwind for those types of competitors. And, and we do hold Lido. So just like full disclosure there. I think it also is just underlining the importance of decentralization of these protocols. Like if you look, just like, Kraken staking is a lot different than Coinbase staking. You know, some of these providers are much more decentralized than others. And the the goal of getting to a finished product like Ethereum, where it isn't the core devs having to, you know, govern and change and modify things constantly to a product that's basically just autonomous, allocated stake among validators, has a reputation bootstrapping system. Like that's really where this market is going to go. And I think that's, you know, one of the silver linings here is like decentralization is no longer just a meme. Like back in the bull market, people centralized because they wanted to go faster. And there wasn't really any benefit to decentralization because regulators weren't knocking on their doors. Now people know that that is actually not the case. Like you need to decentralize or else you're going to die. And, and really in the bull, in the bear market, things aren't moving that fast anyway. So there's no benefit to being centralized other than additional risk to you. So I think that's a, a silver lining. One, uh, you know, thought experiment just in playing back the the point that Vance made in the SEC letter, but also talking about decentralization versus centralization is maybe we just move to a model where you've got, uh, you know, basically low veneer, low thickness applications that manage the customer relationship like a Coinbase or a Kraken, and they plug into these decentralized protocols, which are the actual protocols that are doing the staking, doing the aggregating, doing the creation of the, the LSD, uh, the token, receipt token. Um, maybe that's the business model that they have. And and for that ownership, for that you know customer service relationship, for that SLA you know comp- capability, they get some cut of the revenue that's generated by that operation. But it does change, obviously, the business model. You know, Coinbase isn't going to be able to charge 25% on top of Lido's 10%. But it is going to be something where maybe that's the new model for them going forward. And they have to plug into these decentralized protocols. And the concept of a full stack financial application probably gets disintermediated with pro-decentralization protocols filling in some of these gaps in the infrastructure layers. But, you know, that that could be one model where, you know, everybody is appeased in this in this scenario. Hmm. Yeah, like like money transmitter licenses are the reason why everyone doesn't offer custodial wallets. It's easier. It's it's much faster to onboard consumers. It's a better consumer experience generally. But like the the fact that those money transmitter license rules exist pushed everyone to develop non-custodial wallets and and really like that became the future of the space inadvertently. And so like the regulations don't always designed as don't always work as they're designed, but sometimes there are positive externalities to to how they work. Um, and I think that is a, a positive case as well. I still have so many friends who are like deep in you know the investing space, yeah, pretty deep in the crypto space, very knowledgeable. They still will not touch MetaMask. They still won't do it just because they don't trust it. You know, signing a transaction, how do I store it? What if my assets get taken? You, know, you read about all these phishing scams. Like there is an element of maintaining and owning the customer relationship and providing security and customer support is going to be a business model for a company in the future. 
And that business model is only going to be routing, you know, those customer transactions to the relevant decentralized protocols that are underpinning, you know, these operations. But I, I, there is a business to be made on both ends. Who do you think has the leverage in that scenario? Like, let's say Coinbase becomes kind of a front end to Lido's back end operations. Or, or Coinbase wallet. You know, the, the non-custodial players that are big, it's kind of like MetaMask and Coinbase, and then there's like a huge drop-off to third place. But if, if it trends in the direction that Michael's talking about, where it's a very thin application layer and everything else is offered by decentralized services, you know, you, you look for who the middleman could be. And, and you know, uh, MetaMask has uh, Lido and, and Rocket Pool staking in-app now. Um, I think Coinbase probably gets to a point where they can't offer it by themselves and they see that market to somebody else and, and just kind of act as a middleman. So, so I think it's still those two players that have most of the leverage really. How does, I'm just thinking about this now, how does Kraken unwind this product? Cause they can't even, I mean, you like, can't even withdraw, you, even you can't even withdraw that? your ETH until Shane, Shane can't even withdraw it. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Bankruptcy. No, it's like, yeah, it's a, a very small hole for them to cover, but I think you're going to have to wait. Like the money is gone until Shanghai goes through, and that looks like mid-March. So fortunately, it doesn't look like a multi-month thing, but it's going to be at least 30 days until people get their money back. Does this put more immediate uh, sell pressure or withdrawal pressure for e-staking? I, I just don't believe that meme, honestly. Like if you look at the price points at which mm -hmm. ETH was staked, basically everyone who staked ETH is underwater, and so it's not like people are, are waiting for this you know, windfall that, you know, finally is coming to them. Like they may have a little bit more liquidity. They may sell the rewards, but like selling their whole stake, that doesn't seem likely. I do think the retail with CB ETH, you know, think about that persona. You took your ETH, you, you staked it, not in the normal way. You staked it through a liquid staking token. And, and now you're going to receive the, the course, the underlying back. That doesn't feel like an immediate, I need to sell this case as well. So I don't know. We, we're not really believers in that thesis, I would say. You want to talk about another uh, fun bankruptcy that is actually unwound in a somewhat positive way that we've been talking about for a little while, which is the DCG Genesis Gemini tie-up uh, that we've been that we've been sort of covering for a little while. So this is actually a positive bit of news from this week, which is now obviously uh, pretty overshadowed. But it looks like they've sort of settled on that actually. Um, and basically, the, the deal is so, you know, DCG and creditors representing $2 billion worth of claims against its bankrupt Genesis lending division, including Gemini, reached agreement on a plan that includes DCG restructuring some $1.7 billion of debt and other obligations owed to Genesis. DCG would also contribute equity interest in another unit, Genesis Global Trading, to the bankrupt lending arm. So I actually, when I was reading about this, I kind of forgot that uh, there are two different Genesises. There's the uh, there's the sales and trading and derivatives part, and then there's the, the hold co. And the hold co is the one that went bankrupt. So some of this uh, deck to equity conversion actually gives gives these creditors equity in the the trading and derivatives business. Uh, so just something to, to I, note. I think it's positive, um, but it's not like they're returning cash up front. It's like you no. get like a hat, no. a shoe, like $15, and like, please don't talk to us again. What is the equity, yeah, what is the equity in Genesis worth? Genesis trading. Genesis trading worth. Not not Genesis Global. I had I You know, they're yeah. gonna have to sell that in bankruptcy or or put it through some sort of restructuring so it can emerge. You're gonna need to get all the clients back on platform and start trading again. You're gonna need to rebuild trust with everyone. 
if you're somebody who's traded on there previously who had their money stuck in it, are you now going to like redeposit or like not withdraw your fund from, from Genesis trading? That just doesn't seem likely. So assume that Gemini and Genesis uh, were pushing as hard against each other as possible to come to a deal that was you know mutually agreeable, but also compensated creditors. Um, I've heard the, it's like people get 80 cents back on the dollar number. That does not feel close mm-hmm. to, to reality, honestly, but I'm glad it's, you know, over. No. I feel sad for the creditors. It kind of feels like you're paying back FTX creditors with Alameda equity. Well, that dude. <laughs> oh, dude. That, <laughs> that's a little that's a little tough. I, I I agree with you that I mean what someone could do, I don't know how much is proprietary mm-hmm. in like a in a business like the trading business of Genesis. I don't know if there's a tech component to it, but I guess you could I don't know, someone could theoretically re, like rebrand that. Um, and like auction off the equity. I don't, I don't think so either. Yeah, I I know. I'm trying to do a silver linings, but I I agree. I don't, I think the silver linings is it's, it's, Um, you know, in the rear view. It's done. People have at least closure. They're not going to get all their money back, but yeah, they don't have to be left kind of wondering what's going to happen. Yeah. It it removes one of the things that could fall and an uncertainty in the market, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so it turned out the Winklevi, they ended up kicking in $100 million uh, to that. And uh, DCG had to refinance the loan, basically. Um, so they're basically taking on new debt to pay for the old debt uh, that that Genesis loaned them, uh, which Barry's not going to like. And then there was a conversion of uh, preferred preferred stock in DCG, or there was like a little fine print thing, or another agreed upon subsidiary, which... I don't know what that could mean. Um, uh, I mean, it's got to be grayscale, right? I would guess. To, to do, know. to do some quick sale. napkin math. So they had uh, a bunch of GBTC as collateral that they sold. I think basically at the lows. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's two hundred and seventy million dollars. That was the figure that I saw last quoted. It's actually no, it's not more than that because they sold it. They sold it to cash. So that's two hundred seventy million of cash. So they have a hundred of. Uh, 100 million from Gemini, so you're at 370. The whole is 900, um, and so that's 33% right there. Um, and then everything else is kind of like restructured debt, uh, equity in a hold co or bankrupt entity that's yet to be determined. 80% is not the right number. It's probably like 40, 50%. That would be my guess, and that that seems to be where the the claims are trading to right now. Up up to eighty percent. Yeah, I I don't I don't think it was ever like we expect to be able to get eighty percent back. I think so, it's, so it's getting something back. Genesis claims are trading at thirty nine percent, and like right. none of these claims ever really trade hands. So like this is more of an indicative number than anything else. But it feels like that's more of the real number than up to eighty percent, which is just a funny qualifier in general. There's a good all right here. There's a pretty good quote. I don't know if you guys know who Aaron Brown is. Um, but he writes for Bloomberg sometimes. Uh, he's got a pretty good quote here. This deal simplifies the situation and makes it likely that more value will be salvaged. But the real problem is the value of the assets. It's much smaller than the value of the liabilities. And this doesn't change that. It merely simplifies the process of recognizing losses, distributes, distributes the remaining value, and gets surviving parties on with their lives. There will still be plenty of lawsuits. So I think it's kind of like it's removing a big risk from the market. But yeah, I, I think that is still the point. It did look like their liabilities was bigger than their assets. So. I, I agree. It is that's a good. 
like a couple of gumballs and 15 bucks and <laughs> your, na- your neighbor's cat you know <laughs> yeah your neighbor's cat <laughs> yeah oh god like an old stuff yeah. awesome <laughs> that's been hanging over exactly. the fireplace <laughs> uh sorry genesis creditors at least look at least people can move on with their lives 40 percent is not nothing you want to talk a little bit about a16z and their uniswap governance debacle i don't think um, this is a debacle really i think this is just people being mad on the internet for sure it is people being mad on the internet but just just to give background there was a People are upset on Twitter. Basically, in December, there was a proposal made for Uniswap to deploy onto uh, BNB. Um, and the, re- the reason that they did this, they have a business license on their Uniswap V3, and it's expiring in April. So they're trying to get ahead of that. Um, basically, after that business license expired, you could just you know copy the code. Um, and there's a bunch of volume on BNB. I think it's the third largest chain by TVL. So you know Uniswap has had success in the past when they've expanded onto other chains and they wanted to mimic that. So there was a temperature check, uh, which basically passed with, with flying colors um, about where and how to deploy. Uh, so there were there were a couple of there were two different choices for which bridge they were going to use. One was layer zero, um, and that's backed by A16Z and Sequoia, and then the other was Wormhole. Um, so basically, the the temperature check passed for Wormhole. A16Z comes in. They they said they didn't participate in the temperature check because there was an issue with their custody solution. Uh, but after that, they basically uh, voted it down um, and they changed they changed their vote. Um, the kind of interesting thing here is that A16Z has delegated a bunch of their uni to to a whole bunch of different uh, groups, but including like the student groups like Michigan and UPenn, I think. And they actually voted for uh, Wormhole. So kind of interesting overall. Um, I, I'd be curious. What, what do you guys think about this? One point of clarification, which maybe I, I missed, was it just the fact that they were choosing the bridge or was it the fact that they were going to be launching on BNB with a specific bridge? It was the, it was the choice it. of the bridge. So yeah. they, were, they were mad that they didn't vote and then they were mad that they voted too much. Is that... <laughs> yeah, that... That's what I, yeah, I kind of had the same take. Like, but, yeah. this is how governance tokens work. So if you want more votes, you just have to buy more tokens. Um, and I think that was how these systems were designed. And it seems to be working as intended. I also don't fault them for voting against Wormhole. I think that was, like, another part of the saga where it's like, oh, they're, they're like, playing favoritism. Wormhole got hacked for $300 million. Uh, like, wouldn't be my first choice uh, for a bridge to go somewhere. Um and so, yeah, I think this is kind of working how it's intended. There's always this trope against VCs and how bad they are and they're not voting at all or they're voting too much. Like we, we tried the Frog Nation experiment where like Daniel Estes and those guys were going to like, you know, kick us out of town and, you know, build schools in rural Africa. And like, how dare we, you know, participate in the capital markets of crypto? All of those people turned out to be frauds and blew up. So like, we're the good guys. Everyone else can kind of just deal with it. Like, I, I don't really understand what the problem is. It's capitalism in motion on chain. This always happens whenever there's a vote that people don't like the outcome. They find a way to justify it. Like, you know, around the when, when Trump won, I mean, people were literally like, we got to disband the Electoral College. We're moving to Canada. You know, I don't know. Moving to Canada. <laughs> we don't want you either. <laughs> not to get political here but I, i'm in agreement with you eventually someone has to make decisions i think the thing with DAOs that's a little bit frustrating sometimes is people are like well give it to the community 
but who says the community – what's – who are they as a stakeholder? Like who says they're qualified to make decisions, you know? Like me personally, I want decision-making in the hands of the most qualified people. And I get sometimes there are ulterior motives and interests, but like you want dedicated, qualified people making. The biggest thing that I take away from this is that when you have direct token voting on specific issues, you run into problems like this where whales can't actually sway the decision of these votes. Are they the most equipped? Are they the most educated to be able to make these decisions? I mean, I, I do know that Andreessen has a, a pretty robust governance program. As you were talking about, they delegate a significant stake of their ownership to different other voters. They also have people who are in-house that just focus on governance. So like, I would assume that they were pretty well educated on this decision. But you know, there are other governance models that are being utilized. Right now, there's a few different institutions, a few different protocols that have a representative democracy where the tokens actually vote people into the decision-making capabilities, and then those people decide and make decisions. The other one that we've seen, and it hasn't really played out in, in a robust way quite yet, but Optimism, Optimism has a two-chamber voting mechanism where there are community members, and then there are also token voters, and you can make decisions based on both, just like the US Congress. Like, the other thing too, and and I know we're talking about you know ripping out this direct token voting, but it does feel a little bit antiquated for a, a protocol like Uniswap to be still continuing to have this direct token voting mechanism because you, you do have the whale games that can play out as we just saw, but it requires them to change it. And, and I think there's good experiments going on right now that have different governance models that are working probably a little bit better than here. Yeah. By the way, the goal should be that you finish the protocol at some point and you don't have to govern it anymore. Like if it's a protocol, it should generally end up in that state. Like there is an end date for the Ethereum roadmap. Well, yeah, but but also thinking about, okay, there's a new blockchain that comes up and it's not new, but like, let's just say there's a new blockchain, it's called BNB. You've got three different bridges that you could choose from to be the canonical bridge to bridge between your existing chain and, and this new blockchain. Like there are, there are always gonna be business decisions that have to go on for these protocols. Yeah, sure, the core of Uniswap especially Uniswap v3, v2, those are done. You know, you don't need to go and make minute changes to the code base, but you do have to make business decisions as to like where you want to expand to, how you want to expand there. And so there, I think there are always going to be some governance questions. Maybe they get fewer and further between, but I, I think it goes back to the governance model. If, if you know, if you did want to change the governance model, like that could be a good step in preventing this type of stuff from happening. That That is the, that is the challenge. I mean, it's, I, I guess if I had to, well, if I had to like steel man, maybe why uh, this, we were kind of talking about this before air, but I'd love to get your guys response here. You know, there was a there's kind of this back and forth on Twitter. People take these kind of crazy stances, which is look, A16Z made an investment, right? They gave money and they got tokens in exchange. Um, that's a super understood relationship, even in equity world. And usually when VCs give money, they'll also have like some high level say, usually in the form of like a board seat, right? Not always, but like a lot of time they'll have a board seat, and then they'll have like some say, not necessarily in like the day-to-day -day operations of a business, but it's like comp for executives. If you spend over a certain amount, like really big kind of decisions get okayed by the board. Uh, I guess if you had to steal man a response, like the choice of vendor here between wormhole versus... Um, like another but like it, it that doesn't seem that's that doesn't totally, seem like that's a huge totally thing not true kicked up to i mean if, if you're making this yeah if you're making a decision for instance if you're a startup and you're making a decision of like switching or making a major purchase from like a gcp or an aws those are decisions that the board absolutely opines on and especially if you're changing or if you're making you know what would be a, a major decision but i think the bigger question here is like 
okay, who else, if not the token holders, would be making these decisions? So in the example of a, a startup, you've got the board to make board-level decisions, but then you've got the management team to basically make decisions on the day-to-day operations of the company. If you're like choosing between who's going to be the, the caterer for lunches, that's something that the management team can, can make decisions on. You don't have to go to the board. But who is the management team in this situation, and who would be the ones that are making these decisions is my next question. So if it's not token holders, like who who decides? Like who's the one that actually writes the code to put in one bridge versus the other? So I like that it's not it's not a direct comparable. I understand what you're saying, but there is an element of like who's on first and who's controlling this thing. And like if the default is okay, go to the token holders to vote for everything, it it, it some of these decisions probably don't have to go that high, but you know, who else is, is gonna be there in lieu of those people? Choosing a bridge is such a big deal because it's literally the most dangerous part of anybody's stack in, in crypto. Like that is a something that let's say that they did choose wormhole and they got hacked for everything. They lost like $300 million again. That would then be a decision that like, if you just swap labs made it, people would be like going to their office pissed off levels. But if it's community, you know, and everyone has a chance to vote, and Andreessen only has, I think, four and a half percent of the supply. They vote fifteen million, four point one. They vote fifteen million, and they delegate, I think, like you know, the rest, the other twenty six million. I believe there's like thirty percent of Uniswap float out there. That should be a fair fight. If there is opposition, they should be able to organize. And if they don't, like, I, I don't really have any sympathy for them. Like, yes, the big bad VCs voted. There's enough tokens where you can go against them and win. You just have to organize. Which, in the case of a startup where VCs actually do have governance controls and you know legal representation rights in terms of their shares versus other shares, the the entire math on that equation is completely flipped. Which is that the investors and the founders usually own about eighty percent of the company. You know, when all is said and done, and employees are somewhere in the like ten to twenty percent. And and maybe this is like fungible by plus or minus ten percent, but still, like that's the rough math. In this situation, it's absolutely the reverse, which is the the venture firm owns 4% out of the 30, and the rest of the community and the rest of the owners and the rest of the team own the rest. Totally fair. Well, And one thing that complicates this is it's not clear some, in some of these DAOs. I honestly don't know what's up with the Uniswap Foundation versus Labs, but like it's unclear sometimes who that management team is. Like Every DAO has sort of a different, uh, different answer to that. Um, one thing that I thought was kind of funny here, actually, uh, is... To your point, A16Z, they've got a they've got a good delegate program. They de- they delegate to a lot of college groups. I'm not sure how aware people are of the sway that these college groups actually have in voting on some of these things. But I was talking to a buddy of mine who's kind of in the the DAO tooling and infrastructure space, um, and he, there's sort of a battle going on at at Ave between ugh, these two these two service providers, and he's like, the whole protocol is controlled by these college groups. <laughs> It's just, I, I actually kind of, I think that's kind of awesome, actually. Um, we, we talked to a, a college group at a UGA. I was like super impressed by what they were doing because I mean, it's, those it's, guys it's are amazing. awesome. Anything like that yeah. when I was in college. UPenn, that Michigan, Blockchain at Berkeley. Yeah, Stanford. Uh, there's a, Stanford. There's a lot of really awesome college groups that are doing a lot of good work on the governance side. And, you know, like think about other reputable institutions or, or places that would be willing to vote and, and be delegated these tokens. There's actually not that many. And, and you know, the kids love Web3. And so it's, it's a good fit. Yeah, it, it really does come down to, I think, 
And this is why I'm I'm a pretty strong believer in having a representative democracy at, at a lot of these token governance uh, discussions is because it takes someone who's incentivized with time to be able to actually dig deep and understand this stuff. You know, Andreessen, they're lucky in that they have a governance program and governance team to be able to get dig deep. But if they didn't, you know, do do everyone does everyone who's actually, you know, the one who's clicking the ledger to make those decisions really fully educated on all the different trade offs? I don't know, maybe, but I'm sure at other funds, it's not the case. But when you have a blockchain group, especially like a university student group, they're going to be spending time debating this. This is going to be like a, a problem that they work on at the at their last meeting, like which which way should we vote? Like this becomes so much bigger for them and they're going to be so much deeper and involved in it because of that. I, I think it's it's awesome to have that program. But to Vance's point, like we need to find other institutions, not just you know, blockchain groups at universities that could provide that level of service to these protocols. I would love, I would love to see um, a lot of large companies in the U S participate in governance, you know, run validators for ETH. Like there's, there's kind of like low touch ways that you can get involved with crypto that don't involve you pivoting the whole organization to see what's going on. Um, and so I'm hopeful that that plays out we've certainly heard whispers of it, but you know, nothing official has happened quite yet. Just the, just the last thing to, to kind of, kind of touch on here. One thing that sort of always rubs me the wrong way in these discussions about like the community. I feel like what's loosely being advocated for with that people who would like care a lot about the community and the community's perspective is almost like a majority rules, which, you know, devolves really quickly into like a mob rules type thing. And that's, I mean, you, you there are examples uh, of protocols being beholden to their community in pretty negative ways also. Um, so it's just, it's like, it's a very positive thing about the space that like people want to get involved with this stuff, but it's also... It's it's kind of unclear to me what the responsibilities of the community are as like a stakeholder. Like I just don't get what their responsibilities are, to be honest with you. Also, go- governing things is very hard. Like you, even governing like a small company is hard. Um, and when you throw in all these different variables, nobody said it was going to be easy. And, and a lot of these governance processes are designed to prevent, you know, not just like fast and easy facilitation of day to day operations, but the worst case outcomes happening. Yep. And so, like, you know, you should kind of view governance's function first and foremost is like preventing the worst from happening and, and it going off the rails, which, you know, I think wormhole is somewhat representative of that. You know, it's give and take. It's nothing's perfect. So I'd love to get your thought. This is another kind of interesting debacle going on in not that that was necessarily a debacle going on in governance, but uh, Stargate, um, there's something kind of interesting happening there. So. They're doing a. They're basically reissuing their token supply because of uh, an investment that Alameda made. So, basically, Stargate kind of came out a little while ago. They were pretty. There was a lot of hype around their launch, um, and Alameda purchased about ten percent of the total uh, STG supply from the community sale. Sam and Co. promised that they wouldn't sell the the tokens for at least three years, but you know they're not in control of those wallets anymore. So, you know, for like kind of a low cap and low liquidity coin like Stargate, having 10% of your supply in a rogue wallet is kind of risky. And there was uh, people started talking governance about what to do about that. And there was a proposal um, to basically just reissue the tokens, um, you know, so that the 10% apply that was allocated to Alameda would just sit in a, in a multi-sig until the community decides what to do with it. Uh, on the one hand, I see where they're coming from, but on the other hand... Guys, that, th- come on, like that does not fly, I, I don't think. I mean, 
What's your thought on this? You know who's going to really care about this? John J. Ray the third. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. John J. Ray wants those tokens. <laughs> you can just re Like, it's not like Robinhood is saying, should we just delete the tokens that are in Sam's, you know, brokerage account? Like, no, you can't do that. Those are now subject to a bankruptcy process. So. Well, not, o- not only that, just like the, there are few things that you can change about the monetary or about the supply or token model that a protocol goes out with one of them and it has to be done very carefully and not very often is changing the monetary policy and if you're going to go through and change supply or you're going to change distribution the second that you start making really big changes like deleting 10% of the token supply guess what everybody's now just going to believe that you can do that willy-nilly or print hundred percent more tokens or print four hundred percent more tokens and and so that you know is is more of like the sacrilege you know sacred cow that you cannot touch or if you're going to do it it has to be done in a very careful way slowly and methodically this this feels reactionary and I think it's actually would do more harm if it goes through than you know the benefit of having ten percent owned by John J yeah. Ray did you guys ever read those are John's tokens those are not your tokens. Yeah. You know what this reminded me of? Did you guys ever read that Bill Browder book, Red Notice? In Red, yeah, Red Notice. This reminded me of what they do in Russia. <laughs> they just, like, you can buy stock yep. in Russia, and then it's like, oop, the board issued, uh, you know, 90% new shares to this other company, so you're completely diluted. Or they'll just go into the, the record offices and change your stuff so you don't own the certificates. Like, you can't I mean, do this. listen, no one- we, don't ha- we don't have rules around this yet, and I know, you know, they're, they're made out to be the bad guys in our industry, but this is the reason why the SEC exists, yeah. because we have efficient and secure capital markets more so than any other place in the entire world, which is why we have the financial center of the entire world. And, and the security of those financial markets is based around a lot of very carefully thought out rules and regulations. One of the things that was floated towards the end of last year that I, I don't know where it stands, it's probably probably on hold for now, but one of the things that I thought would have been one of the most positive uh, um, advances for our entire industry is whenever you're releasing a token, there are rules and there are safeguards around how many tokens are going to be minted into into perpetuity, what the, what the lockup schedule is. There has to be disclosures around insiders when they're selling in the exact same way that if you know that one of the CEOs of a publicly traded company is dumping their stock and, and they're not even allowed to because they have a 10B51 plan, like there are rules in place for for a particular reason, and and so I think if we can get there with tokens, that would be amazing. It would help build security in our capital markets. But yeah, I mean, this is this would be a, a great example that I'm sure the SEC would love to make an example of. Did you say that Sam had the tokens and he promised not to sell them for three years, or they were an investment? I'm not contract? actually sure if it was a contract or not. Because I've heard the former that there there was actually no like smart contract lockup. It was actually it was it's controlled by a pinky swear. <laughs> Oh, mm. dude, those are legit, though. Secret handshake password? That's are legit. <laughs> <laughs> Tokens appear. Let me, can yeah. I ask you guys, how did, why did Alameda win deals with these people? Like, they, you know, now I know the sheen has been lifted and we see Caroline Ellison, but they, they don't even seem like they would be, as an entrepreneur, like, meeting with that team. Why did people want to take money from them? Oh, they were they were the hottest, not the hottest, but like, you know, they were kingmakers. They could create ecosystems yeah. like, the, you know, the, they were going to go off and yeah. do Aptos and Mistin the same way they did Solana. And everyone was kind of like lined up to get their share of like the winnings from that. Yeah. 
it's pretty gross, but you know, people really thought that they were the messiahs of crypto. The, people the were giving story. them billions of dollars of, of credit. BlockFi gave them two billion. You know, DCG gave them up to I think four or five or six billion. Like there were no questions asked. It, listen, listen. Remarkable. I think you know remarkable. they they were constantly referred to as the smartest guys in the room. Uh, coincidentally, the name of the book about Enron. But I do think it it is the storyline kind of went like this. It was they're going to offer us probably a two x valuation than we'd be able to get from you know discerning VCs who are actually. Uh, understand these markets. So we're going to take the money. What they've also told us is that they're going to put 10 times the amount that they invest in our protocol into, you know, the, the liquidity pool. They're going to bootstrap, you know, uh, our ecosystem, whatever the investment was in, they would be participatory with capital after the investment. And then it was also sort of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Hey, we've got connections to FTX. You want to get listed? Great. We can do that. So it it, it was it was sort of like a it depended on the investment. It depended on what they were building, but there are diff- there are definitely multiple ways that they'd be able to at least promote themselves when when trying to get into deals. Makes sense. They would also set the floor on ecosystems. So, like if you were launching a Dex on Aptos or like an RPC uh, info provider on Aptos, like they would like at least twenty million. And so they were kind of like this like permissionless liquidity pool for for venture investments as well in this strange way. As long as you gave them tokens, which was you know obviously. Part and parcel of, of the fraud. Yeah. All right. Um, so, yeah, maybe Stargate. Time to rethink that a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about Spark a little bit, um, which is a new chain that, that Maker is releasing. Um, so it's a, it's a fork of V3, but it's a new lending protocol that's set to launch in April of this year. Uh, one of the advantages there is that they have a line of credit from Maker called Die Direct Deposit Module uh, to D3M. They do not need to pay liquidity providers. So basically, you can borrow at the die savings rate, which because of market conditions is currently super cheap. It's about 1%. Um, the, the other cool thing is they're integrating, uh, you know, they've got some sort of partnership with Element Finance, right? Which is the, that's the protocol that strips out variable versus fixed uh, lending rates. So you could borrow at a fixed, fixed rate if you want. And they're kind of building out a, a yield curve. Kind of seems like a pretty ambitious, exciting, exciting plan. Um, it's kind of that DeFi trinity. I mean, you're starting to see some of these big protocols converge, right? Now you've got uh, Curve that's offering a stablecoin, Go, the Aave stablecoin kind of an, uh, launched this year as well. Um, and so all you see the business models of all three of, the, of some of these big DeFi protocols converging on one another. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I have a super differentiated take, but it does seem pretty interesting. I'm curious what you guys think. I think it's kind of, I agree with like the DeFi super app stuff. I, I, and I think the carrot here is T-bill yield. You start a stable coin, you print said stable, stable coin, you have coin shares, Coinbase, and two other people get in a bidding war over who gets to put it where, and you collect half of the yield by giving it to them. So like, especially in a bear market where people need runway and revenue, not surprising to see these, these things converge. But it's like, it's kind of like the lending and the stable coin super apps are, are now all head to head. The rest of the market really hasn't taken on the super app stuff. I think in time, we're going to see like a perps and options super app as well. Just like those two categories kind of rely on each other for hedging and, and other stuff. But there isn't that same draw of like, you know, create a stable coin, give it to, give it to, you know, Coinbase. Like th- that, that option doesn't exist for them, but it, but it's interesting. The, I think part of, uh, part of the reason they did this as well is that 
the the strategy for maker was to get die integrated and the leading DeFi protocols and i think now that you have i think they felt a little bit threatened by that or that that strategy wasn't necessarily working out like if ave suddenly has its own stable coin and if curve you know like they're the ones who kind of set liquidity for different stables like if they have their own it's kind of a clear conflict of interest there i think they saw like their kind of strategy and direction being walled off by you know entities that they thought were going to be distribution but ended up being direct competitors the the other thing that i'd add is and this isn't you know a, a comment on spark in particular or frankly like any of these concepts in particular but one of the one of the consistent conversations that at least i'm having we're having right now with founders is there's a lot of people who are still playing for this like November 2021 landscape of opportunity set that I, I just don't feel like is going to be there going into the future, at least in, in like the short to medium term. Maybe in the long term it comes back, but like, are you ready to like brave the desert for the next two to three years? And and I do think that there has to be some change of direction, change of pace, like looking at Maker, for instance, you know, working on the coin cheers concept, or at least entertaining that proposal, uh, looking at the um, the USDC Coinbase deal, like, you know, they, they're changing their direction actively. Um, and, and I kind of wish that some of these major other protocols were at least thinking outside the box. Um, and, and we've had conversations with a number of our portfolio companies who are just like, throwing up some crazy ideas, which is like, thank you. Okay, this is good. Like, yeah, it's it's a little bit nuts, but like I understand where you're coming from. <laughs> like and the energy. At the same time, like maybe yeah. it'll work. I love the energy. Like you gotta you gotta start playing for a different market, and and you can't continue to assume that just because everything's been blown back up, blown blown up, that it's gonna come back. And I I don't think it's gonna come back uh, in the same way. I think it'll come back. It'll come back in a different way. But you have to be able to understand like that new direction that things are gonna happen. And so you know, generally when I hear about like you know, the, the next like yield aggregator, the next, like, here's a concept where we're taking this protocol and that protocol and doing this in the same way that we were, we were working on it for nine months and we're so excited to launch it. It's like, I, I feel like it's a little too late. Um, and yeah, I, it's more of a broad comment, but I, I just wish, wish we had more of the crazy ideas that, you know, got us into the DeFi into the, into the first place. And, you know, now we're going to be able to pull it into what, whatever the future of DeFi holds. I have a, you know, that that what you're talking about, that sort of switch in perspective for founders, it's a tough I it's a tough thing. I get it. Totally. It's it's the hardest Your problem thing. set has shifted from I have more money than I know what to do with. Everyone's throwing money at me um, to like the hardest problem being hiring because there's so much growth that you're trying to go out there and capture it. And now you have to do a complete 180 and be like, there's there's not much growth to be had. And I'm probably going to have to do scrappier things that I thought I was going to have to do. Uh, it's a tough mental hurdle to kind of to get, and then you have to signal that to your to your team as well. I, I also and, think we have more startups today in crypto than we've probably ever yeah. had, just by virtue of the last funding cycle. And so you have large amounts of people trying to figure this out at the same time. But like, it, it is kind of the point. Like, entrepreneurship is yeah. hard. It's very unlikely that you will succeed. Um, and it's just like only crazy people that really try it. Like. Doing a startup is an act of desperation. It's not like, ooh, this is my next gig. Ooh, I just raised $25 million. Ooh, I'm going to just hang out for 10 years and slowly build this thing. Like, you kind of have to be crazy to start one of these things to start with. And it's a low survival rate as, as a result. And, and so, like, like, people just need to be more nimble, more scrappy. Uh, and, and just, like, waiting is not really a strategy. 
or, or playing to a past that isn't coming back is not going to work. Uh, and, and that, that, you know, the best entrepreneurs are the ones that can navigate that. We're starting to see some of them who can like start to put the pieces together, even like ahead of us having a conversation with them. But like, it's almost time for us to start having conversations with people who are, are still playing for that 2021 vision. So we've, uh, made some hires recently from without naming any specific companies, but like some of the big companies of this last, this last cycle. And it's something that we've observed here. I'm wondering if you guys also see this in your, in some of your port codes, but I think one challenge that a lot of entrepreneurs in this space is faced with is building for the market that exists today versus the one that you think might exist in five years. Um, there's actually a third, which is what I'm talking about, which is hoping for the previous market, which you know how to build for to come back yeah. and waiting for that to, to come back. And, but absolutely, you know, it's, 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 uh, and, and this is kind of the hardest part I think, which is to put something forward. That's not either present or past and, and is forward looking. You have to make an opinion. You have to have an opinion and make decisions, which means that you have to have, you know, basically a perspective that cuts you off from certain things that could be happening right now. And you're putting, you know, your entire reputation, your company on the table to say, this is the direction that things are going. And we're making a bet that things are going to go in that direction. Like I, I was at an offsite for a portfolio company two days ago. And, you know, one of the questions was like, how do you evaluate like risk uh, when you're, when you're evaluating companies? And, and, you know, there's basically like three different types of risk. There's market risk, which is like, are you building the right thing for the market? Are customers actually like receptive to it? And that's more just like operational stuff. Then there's execution, which is like purely operational stuff. Like, do you have the right team in place? Do you have the resourcing to be able to get there? But the biggest one is timing risk, which is, are you going to be at the right place at the right time when whatever it is that you're building, which is future state, is ready to be received by whatever market state is actually you know ready to receive it? And the only variable that you can really control, and you do have some control over which market you're going after, but the only variable you can really control is like how long you're in the market to be able to like have these lines intersect. And, and that's the hardest part. And, and so I think, you know, that's where really, really good founders have a stance, they have an opinion and they go after it and then they play for that great good founders who you know maybe aren't world class or like here's where i think we are right now and i think we can build this and i think we're moving in this direction and maybe they're nimble enough to be able to 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 move with the market um but it is it is an exceedingly hard proposition for most founders to be able to That's do really tough to, to be clear like we do think that you know dex volumes will will hit their all-time high and, and far surpass it we think the tvl will reach a trillion at some point we think that on-chain volumes will overtake centralized exchange volumes. I think what isn't coming back, and and you know those will produce very large winners for the categories. You know the categories right. that, you know the people who are winning those categories will be very very large. What's not coming back is everyone thinking that like the fiftieth largest player is is going to be a, a really big outcome. And so like right. that is you know DeFi is coming back, crypto is coming back, all of that stuff we believe. But what's not coming back is the long tail froth. Of people thinking that the TAMs are unbounded and that like everyone can participate and you know if I get this small cap token it's going to be as large as Uniswap one day like that's just not happening. One one last yeah you you used to be able you used to be able to get you know a top five opportunity and if you were one of the top five in that market you were still a big enough outcome to have venture scale returns now it's one maybe two. Think of there's a good corollary here. Think of centralized exchanges right now it's it's Coinbase and, and Binance. 
there was Bittrex, there was Liqui, there was, you know, the dozens of centralized exchanges that Michael and I used to use in our personal accounts before we started Framework, full transparency. But like, those are all dead. You know, those turned out to not be venture scale opportunities where Coinbase and Binance really are. We're seeing the same thing today in, in basically every other category. It's really funny. That's exactly the framework that I have for media as well. I've always been like, I think there are three. I think there's like room for like three big brands and then maybe like a long tail of smaller Substacks. Substacks. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, also think, think, think about like tech media back in the, in the like 2010 through 2020, yeah. you had TechCrunch, you had Engadget, you had, uh, uh, Business Insider was a big player. Like you had tech all meme. these tech memes, and they were, well, were all going to be huge. But like you had all of these massive, you know, huge that started basically as blogs that became media properties. And I think TechCrunch is still, you know, like kicking. Like they're doing well. Um, but like who else, really, from like that era of those tech media publications? Yeah. It's it's tough for founder. Like the other thing too is like founders. The the pe- honestly the people who are the single solo founders have always blown my mind. I don't know how like my it's a really difficult thing to do. Like I think usually people when it works, uh, there's like a balance there, um, and hopefully you get one person that like knows when to turn it on and one person to like like hold like pull the reins back a little bit. Like let's like just live to fight another day type thing. Uh, it's a, usually that's not the same. Per- it's very rare that that is the same person. Like it's just a tough thing to do. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> when we see pitches, it's not it's definitely not a red flag, but it it's definitely a question as to like why and how and and frankly like how are you going to solve it? Yeah. Because no one has every single uh set of skills and that's why co-founding crews are really important because they need to provide balance. And so it's like okay, you're the solo founder, you created this, that's great, you know, first job, day 1, who are you bringing on as co-founder? Yeah. Right. Uh, the last thing I'll say about the founders is the recent cohort, a lot of them are newer to crypto. And so they don't have that fundamental conviction of like crypto is going to take over the world and here's how. A lot of people are like, you know, it's Web3 and like we're trying to like build this thing. We don't know if it's going to work and, and blah, blah, blah. Like there's no shortage of capital. There's no shortage of resources or, or people to build these startups. There is a shortage of conviction. And to Michael's point, being able to say, Here's how the future is going to play out. Here's how we're going to build it. Here's how we're going to stay alive for long enough for that to work. And here's how all of our competitors failed and what we're going to do differently than them. Like that is probably the most impressive thing that you can bring to the table as a founder when you, when you pitch us. But like the general, like we're going to like, you know, do this and that is just not working anymore. Well, and, and the only point of clarification that I'd have, which is Vance's last point is like, here's all how all of our competition dies. What is baked into that is here's why we will be the number one in our category. Yeah. Because that's the only outcome that you can be playing for now. It's not number two. It's not, I mean, maybe number two in a huge market, but like it's not going to be number four. It's not going to be number five. Those are not going to be returnable investments. So no one, you know, who, who is a legit investor is going to take those shots. Yeah. Well said. Um, that, that's why things like WorldCoin are also appealing. It's like, okay, identity is like this kind of nebulous, unsolved problem. They're like, we have this super audacious vision to put these little orbs everywhere on the planet, scan your eyeballs, get your ID. Like there is a real path for us to be the number one competitor in this category. Like you kind of need to squint to see the future, but at least it's an audacious vision with a lot of conviction. Um, And, and uh, it it is, I don't know, a lot of the time it is the same amount of difficulty building something, you know, relatively small versus something large and super audacious. Um, You know, totally. Um, just a just a book on this the subject of maker. Uh, this is a thing that I've always like. 
his this is this this fits into Rune's endgame somehow. So this is going to be a sub DAO or has the potential to be a sub DAO. That's what uh, you know Spark is going to be. Um, and then basically you can you can it's wholly owned by Maker, but there's going to be yield farming for its uh, the tokens. I'm not gonna lie. I still, I really struggle with with the end game for Maker. Um, maybe it's interesting, but uh, we'll see. I, I'm I didn't mean to like bring up this subject in the context of Maker because I actually do think that they're a great example of, of like thinking outside yeah. the box and like real yeah. world assets and like putting things on chain that you would have never thought about and like doing deals with with Coinbase. Being number uh, one in the category. Being number one in the mm-hmm. category helps. Um, but you know, it, it, it that that actually is a counter example to my points. Um, but you know, it just it it did pique my my thought around something that I've been thinking about recently. But yeah, I mean, it, Rune has a plan. You know, to your point, Mike, who knows what the plan is or how it's going to play out and whether or not it's going to continue to work. But but like, at least there's a plan, yeah. and at least there's an opinion that's been made. Right, and at least there's a, a like a a resourcing to live long enough where it will matter. Yeah. Like that's kind of the whole maker end game to me. It's like we need to get revenue, we need to get ETH, we need to stake it, we need to get yields, and whatever happens with crypto, assume the worst case scenario, like we're still going to be alive. That's powerful. I I, I do want to talk about infinity pools because they're they're pretty. I've spent like a couple hours this week trying to wrap my head around them. I, I talked to the founder actually. Did you guys dig into this at all? I, I saw your tweet and I like right before we hopped on, I started like perusing the website. I'm I'm so curious because we've we've gone down so many different idea mazes on infinite liquidity um and uh i'm I'm very curious to learn like the core premise of infinity pools is you're leveraging the uni v3 lp tokens to generate liquidity for for this leverage we actually know a couple of startups who've built this before and have had real problems bootstrapping people actually lending out their v3 positions it's just like it's very hard um such that like to such an extent that they actually pivoted away from this model so I'm curious to see whether this is something new or whether this is something that's kind of older and, and rehashed. The thing that wasn't coincidental was like the 50 people on Twitter tweeting at the same time that like infinity pools are the next big thing. It's like, oh, okay, yep. Propaganda, propaganda, like here it comes. I don't know, we'll see. We'll see. Well, there's a, the, one of our, our analysts uh, on their ZOX Research podcast, they interviewed uh, the founder today. So we'll hear from him about the mechanism. But All right. they're more technical uh, than... Uh, last like funny thing actually just a little preview into web 2 did you guys see this bard failure from alphabet Ooh. I didn't Dude. see that uh, oh my god what was it a hundred billion dollar mistake hundred billion dollar <laughs> mistake you can't make this stuff up so they so google or alphabet debuted their response to chat gbt which is an ai called bard in the commercial that they released the ai came up with an incorrect answer it actually took the market three days to figure this out, but when it did, it tanked like eleven percent. It was like eight percent one day, and then it just keeps going. <laughs> Literally went from like a one point three trillion dollar company to a one point two trillion dollar company. <laughs> Oops. I mean, you kind of have this this view of like big technology companies is fading gradually, but that's really not the case. Like they get carried out all of a sudden, and it's just a complete disaster. I, I'm not sure if that's what's going to happen here. I'm not sure like how hard it is to copy something like chat GPT, but <laughs> this is not a good initial sign. Uh, yeah, I mean, 
independent of Bard, independent of like all this stuff, not to like reinvigorate a nice uh, deep uh, rabbit hole here. One of the debates that I've been having with like some of my traditional venture friends and, and investing in traditional stuff, which means lo and behold, they invest in AI is is basically like, where does the value accrue? And I, I find this to be kind of like a fascinating thought experiment. If you're, if you've just created chat GPT, does the value accrue to the API call that you're making where the application is paying Microsoft or, or OpenAI to be able to use ChatGPT or whatever, you know, GPT-4 concept they come out with next. And then the UI and the skin on top of that is the sales productivity tool, the, uh, you know, software development suite that is automated. Like there is an element here of like the, the bigger or the big ones are just going to keep getting bigger. And, you know, Baidu is going to have some, chat GPT competitor. Obviously, Microsoft now has open AI. Google has probably been working on BARD for years and like, oops, they stumbled, but like, I'm sure they'll be able to figure it out. Like all of the majors are going to be able to have this massive engine. And I think it's going to reinvigorate growth for a lot of those companies. But does that accrue to startups in the same way that every other technology paradigm has? I, I, I'm hard pressed to see that. You know, maybe you're able to, to like we were talking about with like the thin app on top of the DeFi protocol, maybe you're able to sell like a SaaS business that has really sweet UI, UX for like the developer tool of the future where like 99% of your develop, your, your software is written by an AI. But like that just means that you're a UI on top of an API that's making calls to one of these engines. So I, I'm I'm curious to see how it plays out, but that's my default stance right now. I went to a talk about AI in, in San Francisco, um, and what struck me the most was kind of how nebulous the, the applications of AI outside of these large companies were, to Michael's point. Like, there was a panel of three or four people, and they really couldn't describe, like, a single startup that could, you know, build a real business out of this, other than things like data labeling and offering their data to the large, you know, conglomerates who actually have the lower-level modules. Like... I do think we could potentially be in like a crypto style hype cycle for AI where not much happens other than just gradual improvements to these products that already exist. Like, am I excited to use Bing now? Yeah, I, I guess you could say that. Like chat GPT plus Bing is, is kind of interesting. And I guess getting suggestions rather than just web pages like helps me. But like, what, what are the long-term ramifications of that? The ad market changes? Like, we've, we've already tortured the ad market to death to get blood out of a stone. Like, there really isn't much else there. So I, I don't know if I'm an AI bear. I would say that AI is going to make everyone more productive. It's going to make companies run more efficiently, more leaner, uh, more surpluses. And then where does that go? I think into kind of creating the next types of social networks and money and games that are on-chain. I, I do think that that eventually happens. My wild card is that eventually one of these DAOs turns over their governance to an AI and just has it like goal seek for profit. Like to our earlier discussion, do we want all these like, you know, the peanut gallery voting on things or do we want like this super smart AI that's goal seeking to get more ETH deploying maker's capital? I would probably choose the latter. And we just got to invest in that baby and sit on our hands. And, that's, and that's what, like one step last thing. Four, step four profit. <laughs> step four <I> mean, profit. <laughs> like, like here's the thing. Who cares about some AI that does like chat responses that's broke? That that AI has no money. Versus, you know, like let's give an AI money and see if it can like grow it into like a trillion dollars. That's how you create something like Skynet. And that's what's most exciting to me personally. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end it, fellas. Uh, this has been a fun one. Let's uh, raise a glass to Skynet. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>